out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 show on David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the guitarist and songwriter and singer. It is the one and only Terry Bickers, who I spoke to very, very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry and all that other groovy stuff. Anyway, one-time member of the House of Love and also in Levitation and a few other musical uh, combos. And uh, yes, so this is the interview. So after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to that very exciting subject that was the early formative years and those early musical influences. Anyway, there's a lot of information. Take notes. I might just test you at the end. Anyway, Terry, it's going to be over to you. A musical awakening. Let's see. Um, I think, you know, when I try and track back, uh, as we often, you know, as one often does, um, my sort of, I think a big influence on me would have been listening to the radio. Mm hmm in the 1970s and there were you know songs that would come on that just stood out and just made you kind of step back and just kind of go I want to know more about that or you know um something like for example like Seasons in the Sun yes um you know and and it, and it was probably a it was a mood thing <clears throat> and it was a sound thing you know, because that song has some very distinctive sort of tremolo kind of sound on it. Um, but there are also just certain like songs in the 1970s that were just so mood evoking, you know, like Wichita Lyman and things like that, that were yes. just would just transport you really, you know. Well, it's interesting because um, I remember Seasons in the Sun because it had a, it has such a sort of melancholic, melancholic quality, doesn't it? And even yeah. when you're about 10, you get that yeah. sense that something really sad. And then there was Harry Nilsson, yeah. <clears throat> I Can't Live If Living mm -hmm. Is Without You, which again is one of these kind of majestic songs that we just kind yeah. of like you listen to. And also, I have to confess, I absolutely love <clears throat> The Carpenters because I'd listened to Radio 2 probably mm -hmm. with, in the kitchen with my mum. This is probably in mm -hmm. the six, late 60s. And they had a lot of those, all 70s actually. Um, mm -hmm. But all those songs and lyrics were like, you know, I say goodbye to love and rainy days and Monday and, and you know, yesterday yeah. once more. And even though I was probably about 10 or 11, I just found them really, I just really love them, you know, and you think, God, that's weird. Yeah. I can see why I love Joy Division and the Smiths later on in life. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. It's all, it's all like uh, ancestral lines, isn't it? You know, It is a bit. And then there was like two little things. boys had two little toys. And again, there's a sense of something... <clears throat> beautiful but it's all going to end in tears isn't it like seasons in the sun yeah yeah it's kind of and were you and were you in a, a musical house at all were your parents at all musical um well we, there was a little bit of um there was a kind of a we a little bit of a lack of a sort of music collection you know in terms of records um we did have some records um but it was you know, a couple of classical albums, and I think we just got given about 30 or 40 singles, which were a very mixed bag. There were kind of, there was rock and roll in there. Um, so it was really, in terms of, you know, like 
my parents were just listening to the radio really not playing mm. records but that came later um i will say <clears throat> on the subject of, of that sort of family influence my um my both my aunt and uncle on my mum's side were um you know were involved in folk in the folk scene right in scotland in scotland my mum is scottish and uh, they were both uh, my aunt ran a folk Falkirk uh, folk club for a number of years and uh, so they both played guitar so that was kind of an, an interest you know seeing them play guitar albeit very occasionally um but as i say with my own <clears throat> sort of family household we had the planets by holst and the swan lake albums mm -hmm. um and, and a bunch of sing singles and within the the singles collection there was a uh, Telstar was one of the songs and that got a lot of plays so it was kind of like yeah um and then I was going to go on to say that um my um my uh, mum um was had a relationship with a guy who she later married not my dad mm -hmm. um who was a big music big music fan he introduced you know us to david bowie um a lot of pink floyd and all kinds of other stuff um camel <laughs> um i'm just trying to think of some of the other things now you know like yes yeah that's so, interesting because I guess I mean were you brought up in London? Was this was were you a London? I was yeah. Right. I was uh, raised in Fulham, yeah, in southwest oh, right. London. It was I because I, I sort of come from the you know the countryside, the pastoral delights mm. that is kind of East Anglia, you know, Norfolk Suffolk area. Okay. And um, right, yeah. you know, it was very it was kind of very working class. So my parents who got married probably in the late 50s i mean it was one of those generations they never borrowed money so they would just kind of literally sell anything they had just to sort of get a place together and so we didn't have a record player in the house until the early 70s so there weren't a lot of records about but my i had an older brother who was seven years older and he he suddenly started buying things like you know sergeant pepper and goodbye yellow brick road but then he was that generation because he was seven years older who was into prog rock and actually mm -hmm. Camel was one of those ones that he loved, and and yeah. the work of Yes, Genesis, Wishbone Ash, Barclay James Harvest, and the solo work of Rick Wakeman, yeah. which bizarrely yeah. I I used to sneak into his room and listen to all these when I was young, thinking they were brilliant. But yeah. then in, in the eighties I grew to get hit, you know, but I still I still have them lodged in the back of my brain somewhere. As I yeah. So Camel, yeah. there you go. I, yeah, well, yeah, Flight of the Snow Goose, I think it was called. One yeah. of them. What about Steve um, Hackett? Did you did he have a Steve Hackett album? No, um, I'm, I'm struggling to think of some of the other another band. There was a band called Stray. I remember um, that was one of one who were a bit more obscure, sort of slightly progressive, I think, and maybe a little bit more leaning on kind of heavy rock. Yeah. Um, no, I mean it was those are the. You know the ones I've already mentioned. The ones that I sort of remember most. I remember a, a really great album. Um, oh, I remember uh, there was an album called Dreamweaver. Uh, I remember that song in particular. I'm trying. I'm struggling to remember who the artist was. Um, and what was the other? I, I, there was an album, the um, 
Mick Ronson's solo album. Right. Slaughter on 10th Avenue. I thought that was amazing. Yes. So, um, so being so quite mixed, you know. And being in London, did that mean you you were sort of picked up on a bit more of the sort of the the musical ch- changes that was going on? Because to be honest, if you lived in the countryside in East Anglia, hmm. things didn't change much. We didn't get punk okay. until much later. In fact, it probably never okay. arrived. Mm. Yeah, yeah, we we got punk. Um, I another you know talking of sort of early influences. Um, one of my friends was was um, very, you know, he was kind of shared a lot of what he was listening to and, you know, almost like, like an older brother would, you know, he was taping things off of John Peel. He was much more proactive, you know, in finding out about things, you know, things to me were just sort of coming, as I say, through the radio yes. and stuff like that. Um, I just wanted to just sort of add that into the, the sort of earlier earlier influences, you know, and uh, give him a nod a nod of thanks, you know. Yes, for, well, absolutely. These these play, people playing, uh, yeah, you know, just just sort of like listen to this, you know. This is uh, not really saying, oh, this is great. You've got to listen to this. It was just literally like just put things on, you know, and just um, and that opened up all the um, the the sort of post punk, but but um, but yeah. When did you um, when did you pick up a, or get get a guitar in your life? Um, that was well. What came first? Bass guitar came first um, because I started having lessons at school because that they were the only music lessons that uh, were left available by the time I heard about it or whatever you know. Or some for some reason there were less music lessons were offered and. As I say, uh, when I got wind of it, it was just there was, you know, bass and probably I think there was trumpet and sax. You could join the swing band because our our school had quite a successful uh, swing band or a good swing band. Um, But I wasn't really into doing that. So, yeah, I started doing bass lessons Um, and um, the guitar came a bit later. Well, the guitar actually came through the a uh, friend that I just mentioned, he, we played together in a small band or in, in a group. Um, and um, it was through him <clears throat> that I learned my, you know, first uh, guitar chords and things like that. Yes. Um, I didn't get my own guitar until I worked in a music shop. And that is um, the guitar that I sort of have used pretty much throughout my musical career um so it's like this uh, japanese copy of a of a gibson 335 uh, dot guitar as they're known yes semi acoustic so i've had that yeah since i was about 16 and that was my first electric guitar blimey you haven't you know i feel that's, yes i suppose in the 70s you know musicians you know who were had made it obviously had a sort of like apart from having a lot of cars vintage cars and all that kind of stuff also had a lot of guitars but obviously you you sort of you know didn't didn't go that in that route of you know needing to sort of have a small mansion with a no small small sort of I don't know tennis court of you know guitars hanging on the wall yeah I mean it was as I say that was really the early days you know I, I was fortunate in that my um 
my grandfather bought me my first bass guitar, um, which um, I decided to uh, defret, take the frets out of, <laughs> which was a bit of a mistake. <laughs> but then I'll <laughs> that that went didn't didn't ever seem to be quite play quite as well after that. But um, <laughs> yeah. it seemed like a good idea at the time. Yeah. Um, uh, but then you know I I was on bass for you know like about I don't know a good uh, four years I would say. It's interesting. I was just listening to an interview with uh, Keith Richards, who's kind of been promoting his solo album that he did. I don't know, decades, twenty-five years ago. Okay. I didn't realize he, he was such. He was in. He played bass on a lot of the Rolling Stone stuff, as well as the solo album okay. he was talking about, and right. um, okay. including Happy. But he also loved the work of Robbie Shakespeare of Slime Robbie. I didn't realize he'd mm. kind of. He said he preferred the bass than the. Than the you know rhythm guitar, which was quite interesting. Right. So yes. Uh, so was there any particular bass player that you were kind of influenced by at that stage? Uh, yeah, that would have been Sting, of the Police. Yeah. Yes. Well, yes. it's got to be got to be done, hasn't it? It was. It was. You know, front and center of all our lives back then. You know, well, particularly with me and my friends because they were, they were the band that we. We're really into so we're I think it's their second album isn't it walking on the moon and message oh, in the yeah, bottle yeah. that was that yeah. was the album I think it was 79 that we kind of you know there was there was Blondie's parallel lines as well as the yeah. play and that was they seemed really you know perfect pop records really because dear old Margaret Thatcher gets in and suddenly we have the Tory government for decades and then you know we had the Falkland war and then there was the minor strike and then there was I don't know, Battle of the Beanfield and all that kind of malarkey and Red Wedge. So mm -hmm. in, in that kind of seven, uh, late 70s and early 80s, you probably come to that point where you were, did you leave school at 16? I left school when I was 15. Well, you know, borderline 15, 16. Um, uh, yes, so um, yeah, I did, yeah. And there you go. And that, was that when you went in the record shop? Uh, yes, it was. Yeah, I started. Well, I worked in actually in Denmark Street in uh, what was then known, I suppose, still is as Timpan Alley, which was where uh, the hub of um, music retail in central London. Um, and that was a that was also a musical education. Yes. Um, really was quite interesting. It was a. I've I've said this to people over the years. You know, I think I learned a lot there. I learned from. Um, uh, my colleagues, you know, there was a, a very good guitarist who worked there um, called Chris Bryant, and um, I learned from my colleagues, and I also just learned by watching people coming in and playing. I think that was a even, you know, probably understated, but actually a, quite an important thing for me, you know, as, as a player. Mm. Um, certainly, uh, working in a music music shop, it kind of made me hungry. Because people to to do you know to do the thing to be in a band and to have a crack at uh, you know making it or whatever you want to call it you know um, because people would often be coming in and going off on tours and you know and telling us stories about what they've been doing so it was very exciting to hear about that and I think it, it definitely um, wet my appetite for that kind of uh, life. Yes, well that's good. Um, and did you? Yeah, a bit curious and 
go and listen to the the work of Focus, Hocus Pocus, and learn the guitar rift on that, because that was one of those classic <laughs> 70s rock bands, wasn't it? <laughs> that was a great one, yeah. Um, was that Sylvia? Do, or do, do, am I thinking of something else? Yeah, it's something like Sylvia. Yeah, there was my brother had Is that, yeah. that. All right, maybe it's something it is, different, yeah. Um, yeah, it was one of the, it's the famous song, okay. the famous one that everyone would just right. learn that kind of rift. And I just wondered, as yeah. you're in the shop all day, and probably once a day or once a week, would hear that kind of pick up the guitar and have a go yourself. Well, it's interesting you say that, actually. I mean, there was, I think one of the things, and this is a sort of, a, there were peop, certain people that came into the shop um for example rory gallagher mm. um who was the irish musician uh in his band with his band taste he he used to come in and and I'm not saying he would come in and start sort of like doing these amazing solos or anything but it was just you know there were quite a few people who mm. as i say frequented the shop um and um yeah, it was it was very interesting. There was a uh, back then there was Billy Duffy from the Cult or right. Southern Death Cult, as I think they were called then. Um, the men they couldn't hang. Um, I, I sold uh, Will Sargent from Echo and the Bunnymen. I sold him the twelve string Vox teardrop guitar that he used on Killing Moon, and I was, you know, that was quite a sort of you know. Yes, that I was, was quite. Uh, what was the word? Yeah, I was uh, starstruck. <laughs> you know, you, you... <laughs> you know, he's very unassuming guy. You know, being a fan of of them. You know. So. Yeah, well, it would. You know, I would. I would be pointing at the cam uh, at the TV, even if no one was in the room. Going, I, I thought I've sold that. Yeah, to that's my claim to fame. That was a claim. To fame. <laughs> <laughs> so then, interesting. We had that punk period, then post punk, then eighty three. Yeah. The Smiths appear for me. This is a big moment. So for five years, indie yeah. pop suddenly had this kind of. The Smiths appeared on telly. It was like, mm. oh my god! And then there was all the indie bands and these amazing indie labels, and everyone got very excited. And, mm. and this is when I became really obsessed with John Peel and sort of getting the NME. So, what was that next period like for you when you started kind of becoming a bit older, and then at the same time yeah. probably seeing John well, on Denmark? Yeah. Right? Um, yeah, I, I don't remember ever seeing him, but uh, it would have been nice. Um, that was, yeah, like yourself, you know, the Smiths were a, a big influence at the time. Um, it went really well, hand in hand with um, with bedsit living. <laughs> 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 it was the perfect soundtrack, basically. Yes, to loneliness um, and alienation. Yep. Um, <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, they were... They were a sort of, yeah, you know, big band at the time and I uh, did get to see them play live a couple of times. Um, so, yeah. The, um, so when did you sort of form your first band? Because this was, God, was it the <coughs> mid-80s, your, your sort of mm -hmm. first moment? Yeah, um, I think I was looking at the sort of timeline earlier and... I think I started playing in the band at school with my friends in about 1979. And, uh, and we were playing a variety of covers, mostly the police. Um, 
Yeah. So that which was police which police tracks were you playing at this stage? Um so lonely. Um we might be able to sort of just about hack it through Roxanne. Can't stand losing you, I think. Uh it was all the outlandos, it was kind of the earlier stuff, you know. I think I was um, Regatta de Blanc, wasn't it? The second. Yeah, yeah, that was. That was yes. um, so lonely must have been quite hard to play. Um Quite, I guess it's it's got this it's got pretty much repeat repetitive chords. It's not I wouldn't say any of their songs are particularly easy to play, especially not when you're just beginning. Right. Um, but we seem to be able to, you know, get away with it. Um, Stuart's drumming pretty rocking. It, it it is really rocking. Yeah, I mean the rockinest, you know. Yeah. <laughs> really. Um, I don't know if you. You know, I've, I've in recent uh, years, I've, um, you know, began watching some of their live footage again and uh, they were so amazing, you know, and, and it was a really um, very sort of uh, formative to see these people, you know, who were at the top of their game, really, you know, um, as, a, as a sort of uh, musical whatever you call it you know um role models you know yeah i mean they are quite phenomenal they were mm. phenomenal. yeah i mean you know and especially there were three piece who created such an incredible kind of um sonic yeah. sound and and yeah, yeah and that you know those first couple of albums especially the second one was good it was interesting i did an interview with dear old miles copeland who's brought a book out in the last year and um mm. the story of the police was quite strange really because Stuart had been in a band called Folk, no, Curved Air, uh, which was quite yeah. an interesting folk band. And then mm -hmm. they were sort of back in the backing band for Cherry Vanilla, weren't they? Cherry Vanilla? I think That's that. right, yeah, yeah. Yes. yes. And yeah. Um, there was that moment. And then <clears throat> they were going nowhere quickly. And then they played mm. a small tour in America. And it was a mm. kind of a gig where there was like five members in the audience, but one of them gave them that kind of break. And then from mm. then, you know, the whole... Thing just started to happen but you know he credits that one evening in front of five people that they played that that changed the whole course of their career so um mm -hmm. it's a nice story isn't it but mm -hmm. so there you go that's miles and then he started I irs and then rem and the rest is history isn't it really sure yeah yeah he was the man. Yes. Oh my God, that we were off track. Sorry, that was the place. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yes, your first. Yes, so the school mm. band. Big on the, the school band. Yep. So that was the first thing, and um, you know, we started writing our own songs. We were um, around that time. Uh, you know, around about nineteen eighty-two, uh, maybe even eighty-one. We were going to sort of pub gigs in uh around fulham and hammersmith um in in london and um and we were and also playing at some of you know the occasionally we would be able to you know they weren't really checking our ages then we looked we looked a bit older than we were um mm -hmm. and they didn't you know it wasn't as so strict as it is now with um know playing places and uh you know showing id and everything and so we were actually gigging you know round about age 15 uh, 16 um and that was also you know i think important 
uh, and formative. Yes, and the live circuit, because dear old J.J. Yeah. French, who was the guitarist in Twister's Sister, who I didn't like, but I think he's a really engaging guy. Yeah. Um, yeah. But he was saying that um, Twister's Sister were bizarre. They, they started in about 72 and for 10 years just played every night, if not twice yeah. a night. So he played thousands of gigs and they didn't get a record deal until about 82, 83, because there was an appearance they had on the tube and suddenly someone signed them. But they were huge kind of audiences. But he, he was just saying that playing live, you know, he, you know, it's just kind of essential. I mean, everyone says that, I don't know. But it was that thing that he, when someone said, oh, do you want to come see my band? He always, he, his little anecdote is like, well, unless they've played over 500 gigs, I, your band's going to suck. <laughs> <laughs> so wait until you're yeah. done your 500th gig and I'll come and see yeah. you otherwise you'll suck you know so it's that's like, right yeah. You know, yeah he's a bit rock and you roll know. isn't he yeah yeah but there's some truth in it isn't there you know that, that like often you 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 will see you know a new band in inverted commas um and then there's that that five years leading up to the first record or or even longer um yes you know, so and and you know, and once it all happens, it happens. And um, yes, yeah. you, you yeah. probably wonders if you ever going to happen. So then, after your school band, then yeah. next band, this this the, the the Irish indie rock band. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, who were uh, yes, Colenso Parade. Yes. Who who I had the good fortune of of meeting or uh, auditioning for. Um, this was in like around uh, late 83 or 1984. I'm not sure exactly when I joined because it's all a bit. I've got tapes that date from late 1984. Mm -hmm. And I know, you know, we were playing before some of the uh, gigs um, that I've got on those tapes. Um, but uh, yeah, they were um, a great band. Um, had a fantastic singer called uh, Oscar Askin, um, you know, who was, I would say, you know, given a different set of circumstances, could have easily been another uh, Morrissey. He was very well read. He wrote very interesting lyrics. He had a very, very powerful voice. Um, he was actually asked after Ian McCulloch left Echo and the Bunnymen, he was actually asked if he would join Echo and the Bunnymen. Um, but um, my um, during that, you know, so I sort of was gigging with them for uh, a couple of years, um, doing my first, you know, out of London shows, um, you know, sometimes just being in the back of a uh, no windows Luton van driving to Brighton or wherever. You know, Excellent. Which quite an experience. <laughs> As you do, you know, you don't really think about these things when you're young. You just, uh, um, you know, there was there was various experiences like that over the years. Just being in a in a the back of a van, whether it's a transit, <laughs> you know, um, often not with windows. Um, and uh, yeah, they, um, what can I say? It was great to be in, you know, like in another gang, as people often say when joining bands. They were great fun. Um, it was the band was sort of originally, I think, the brainchild of the the singer and his partner, Linda Glendening, 
Um, and um, so they were very much like the core of the band. Um, and, um, and yeah, it was, I thought it was amazing. You know, I joined when they'd already recorded a, a couple of singles, um, which still to me, I think still sound fresh, you know, today. I know that's a bit of a cliche, but there's a song called Standing Up, if anyone Standing up. listen to it, it's on YouTube. Um, yes. I think it's an amazing sounding song. And it was just great to sort of jump in on that. Um, what They didn't take me on straight away because I was, this was around the time that I just started working in the music shop and then bought the said red guitar. Um, and um, they auditioned me three times. I think they had other people that they'd auditioned and for some reason it didn't work out. And I, and I went back for, you know, say subsequent auditions each time between each audition, I sort of practiced their songs. Um, I didn't even know how to, I couldn't pl play any cover versions at the time. I probably knew about four chords um and uh so i sort of managed to sort of through luck managed to find my way into that band um and just learned you know just really went over their their riffs and um learned you know the parts and and um managed to sort of you know make something out of it you know and that was they were had my earlier recording experiences with them as well um, yes. some fantastic um, got some great memories there was one studio um, that uh, I know this is probably you know not necessarily very interesting for anyone that isn't familiar with it but there was a back in the day when um, down at Wapping um, on the Thames in London uh, a place called Wapping there used to be a studio called Elephant Studios there and you know, the lots of bands have been through there. The Smiths had recorded. Uh, I think that their album that they shelved had been originally recorded. I think with a guy called Troy Tate. Oh, and this um, is the one that John Porter picked up, wasn't it? Yeah, I think they used one, or they think they, I think it was Gene, the song Gene they might have used, or something like that from that session. Or yes. I can't remember. But I think um, I think when they heard the mix and the the finished one, it was um, a disaster, wasn't it? So they had to they yeah. had to try and get John Porter, who'd gone, you know, he'd got an amazing body of work in the seventies, working with mm -hmm. people like Roxy Music. To yeah, and but then they, I don't know, Jeff Travis didn't have much money. Said, look, I've got a bit of cash. Can you just quickly record them over the weekend and make it better? Um, yeah. I've got a yeah. really interesting story about that. But um, okay, that, yeah, why, why is that? Yeah, yeah, tell me. <laughs> Well, he's um, but, he has quite, he had a fantastic relationship with Johnny Marr, dear old John, for decades and decades, and um, and then he he, you, you, I'll have to give you the recording of it, but he um, he sort of has an interview and he says, well, I played one of those sounds on one of the Smiths records, you know, I did it, and um, and Johnny just went totally mental at him about the whole thing, saying, no, you didn't. And he said, well, I did. I. And, and he even said that, you know, when they were going to tour America, yeah, I mean, I'd have to give you the tape, but it was almost like yeah, he had to go and find the recording that he gave so Johnny could sort of make the sound. I think it was from How Soon Is Now, but that could all be a bit tricky to remember. But, it, yeah. you know, he was 
furious and Johnny's never spoke to him since. Really? From, oh, from okay. saying, well, but I did play a part on one of those records that's very iconic. So um, I'd have to yeah. listen to it again. But yes, yeah, yeah. there you go. People yeah. get very touchy well, even 40 years later. Okay, yeah. Um, yeah, but um, talking about the uh, Elephant Studios, um, I was there with Colenso Braid. Um, we recorded an EP there and uh, later House of Love did their demo there that got assigned to Creation Records. And so that was, a, a, you know, a, a, a quite an interesting um, time and place, you know. Yes, absolutely. I know all those studios have got such a history, haven't they? Everyone, everyone went through them, really. So there you go. Yeah. It sounds very familiar. So then, how did because mm -hmm. you did you did an EP and an album with the band, but then you um, it finishes in '86. Was that because the band were coming to an end, or you decided that you had um, other musical adventures? Uh, they they decided that I had other musical adventures. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, it was. I was. I would say, I wasn't. Looking back, you know, I don't think I was like that untogether, but I may have, I, I think I lacked a little bit of professionalism in terms of my equipment. Um, I've mentioned this to people before. There was one particular gig at Dingwalls in Camden where I had a couple of beers and it was quite an important gig. I think we've had people there to review the gig and I broke a string and you know it was all the inherent sort of can I borrow a guitar type of thing you know and and I was a little drunk and that didn't go down very well and I think at the time this was when I'd been in the band for about you know at least sort of a year and a half getting on for two years and and they'd been doing it for you know a period of time before I joined and I think they were just getting really impatient and they could see that there was a chance there and obviously they didn't want to take any risks you know uh, understandably and they saw me as as a you know a, a sort of weak link in the chain and um you know and got one of their friends in uh, John Watt um who they'd known back in Ireland to come and join the band and uh, that was that was quite a you know a shock um I didn't think that I, I like there were it wasn't like a really I didn't feel it was like a serious misdemeanor it was just something that happened at a gig and and then say they just decided they they felt um that this was going to make the difference if they had some new blood in the band or something you know right blimey yeah so that was so, a 12 month episode but then another band I was kicked out of yeah another band <laughs> <laughs> to add to the list <laughs> Well, I know this, um, this does happen, doesn't it? You, know, you have to roll yeah, with things. Yeah. But, um, yeah. but then how did, how did your sort of formation of um, the House of Love begin? Oh, that was, um, I went to, uh, I, I looked, I saw an advert in uh, The Melody Maker, uh, guitarist wanted, um, the name The Velvet Underground, I think was mentioned in the advert. I knew absolutely nothing about um, them. And um, and I went along to meet Guy um, in his flat, and he played me some four-track demos that he'd recorded on a, a four-track 
what were then known as Porter Studios, where mm. you could uh, record your demo, your songs. And he played me some songs, and I thought, this has got this has got something. You know, this is right up my street. It was um, melancholy. You know, it was reminded me of the Cure. I think first first off, I thought, oh yeah, that sounds like the Cure. Um, I wasn't that massively into the Cure, but it, that also kind of touched on like the Echo and the Bunny Man and other things that I was into, and um, yeah, so it, it did. That they were, you know, it really captured my imagination. Um, and he just asked me to come along and start jamming. We went. Uh, he had some equipment set up in a friend's flat, and we just started jamming. And he would show me the parts of the songs because he used to predominantly write the riffs, you know, write songs complete with the riffs and everything. Um, and I would just sort of interpret that. So that's how that began. So it was just Guy and myself at the beginning. Uh, he knew Pete Evans, uh, the drummer, who he'd uh, played with some time previously. And I knew um, Andrea Hoykamp and Chris Gruthausen. I knew them socially from uh, in Camberwell. And uh, I asked them to come along. We all sort of got together, rehearsed, and that was how it began. Blimey. Um, this is yeah. good, isn't it? It's, it's kind of in yeah. It's 85. I mean, 86, yes. 87 things are, are great in the indie world, aren't they? To be honest. It, it, yes. Yeah. It was, it, it there was, was so much going on. So there, you were there at the yeah. classic time. Did it feel, because mm. with a lot of these kind of bands I've interviewed, and um, you can imagine, yes, and you've been in quite a lot, there's a five-year narrative, isn't there? And the 80s is, you know, 80s, 90s, you know, the band gets mm. together, 12-month honeymoon, they get a mm. John Peel play, oh, John Peel session, this mm. is all good. That first album, things are looking really good. And also, like, you had the gatekeepers, you know, like John Peel. There's three mm. weekly music papers, NME, Sounds Melody Maker, and every, yeah. every yeah. town and city, well, town, has an alternative indie night, mostly on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. So, yes, you can sort of get that little bit of traction. So what was it, what was your first couple of years like in, in the House of Love? Well, it was um, really interesting. Um, we were, most of us were based, well, Guy was still living in North, in it, around Islington then. Um, but the rest of us were in South London. Uh, Chris, Andrea and myself were in Camberwell. Um, and it was an interesting, uh, very sort of an interesting scene at the time because as it's sort of, uh, there was a lot of uh, squatting going yes. on. Uh, I wasn't squatting initially. Um, well, you could, I was sort of, you could say I was squatting in a way because I was uh, living with my partner at the time, squatting in her flat, um, <laughs> in, her, in her student accommodation. Nice. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, it was interesting. There was a lot of creativity, you know, going on, uh, lots of really interesting things happening. Um, my partner at the time was a student at Camberwell College of Art doing textiles. And, uh, you know, there were some really interesting kind of eclectic kind of nights happening. You might see one week you'd see uh, Desmond Decker and then or one month and then the next month they'd have like a glam rock night. And it was a lot of fun. 
you know, um, used to go to a lot of uh, private views and things like that. So there's a kind of arty, definitely an arty music hybrid thing going on. Yes. Um, it was cool. Plus the squat thing as well. So there were lots of different bands <clears throat> around that area, loads of musicians and uh, yeah, just people doing their thing really, you know, um, dropping out. Dropping out, <laughs> so, yes. I mean, there was being on the dole, you know. But being on the dole and the job seekers lands and enterprise land schemes all sort of helped a lot of uh, creativity in the 80s. And also, there was Mm -hmm. like you were talking about the art scene, there was the music scene and the art Mm -hmm. and the painting. But there was also, you know, we loved all those kind of art house films, didn't we? Like Betty Blue and Diva and Razorhead. And then there was bands like um, Spinal Tap and With Nell and I. And, you know, there was was a lot of great. I know, it's yeah. well, carrot. Um, so. Yeah, well, well, yeah, yeah, I <laughs> should have known, you know. I mean, it was, yeah, talking of Wivenel and I, it was, it was all there in the film, isn't it? You know, it's just up there, you know. Here's, here's a, what would you call it? Yeah, a sort of uh, a life lesson, you know. Take note. <laughs> Take note, 20-year-old person. <laughs> yes, I know. Pay, and, pay attention to this film. It has good lessons for you. It has. I know there was always a bowl of washing up that was always just there and you'd have to just kind of pick a <laughs> mug up and just clean the one mug and just leave. you didn't wash everything else. You just cleaned one mug, <clears throat> boiled the kettle, poured it over the edge of the, you know, the rim of the mug because you just wanted to kill any germs and off you went. It was disgusting, yeah, really, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. And, then, and there was never anything <clears throat> in, the kit, in the fridge. It was just like, oh, yeah, <laughs> never mind. Shall we go? Oh, look, happy hour at the pub. Let's go there. And uh, yeah, let's get absolutely. some chips on the way home. That'll be fine. Uh, yeah, that was it. That was it. It was. It was kind of like, can you lend me? A, you know, can you buy me a pint? You know, and, yes. uh, when my when my check comes in, and uh, when my benefit check comes in, and I'll pay back the fiver. The fiver. Um, yes, it was all like that. You know, it was very like that. You know, like tins of yeah. tomato, tins of tomato, yeah. TVP, and and lots of sort of yeah. kind of all that kind of malarkey. God, it was it was kind of quite. <laughs> so it was, yeah. Um, was, where were you then? Where, where, where well, just, I was in Norwich, but I, I, but I do yeah. remember sort of, you know, we got the kind of the gas bill one winter when it'd been a horrendous winter. And it was like £15 for five, you know, for three of us. And we all just went, oh, yeah, I've got five. I mean, there was yeah. no central heating or hot water. It was just like literally what would have been the, the gas, the one gas mm. cooker and probably not even the oven. It was just the ring, you know, to boil. Yeah. To, of water for a cup of tea or coffee really yeah. i just thought i thought god yeah. yeah it was 15 pound i remember that you know it was like yeah but one of the coldest winters in in the 80s it was like yeah yes. we just we yeah. just sit around in your sort of big coat and socks and <clears throat> yeah in, and boots wouldn't you from the army and navy store absolutely so. yeah 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 but we were happy fingerless <laughs> gloves just kind of yeah. sitting there with that kind of just oh, it's so cold should we go to the pub yeah i think so. yeah so, um, yeah, yes, but then, yeah, the House of Love, then, I mean, yep. it just took off, didn't it? I mean, suddenly, yeah. you didn't just kind of, you weren't just one of those little indie bands. This was like, mm-hmm. you became kind yeah. of major players and, and you created yeah. an amazing sound. Yeah. Um, yeah, we, you know, like you were saying earlier about playing a lot, we, we t- sort of took most of the opportunities that were offered and most of the gigs that were offered. Um, and you know we were so that's sort of we we there was some really uh, interesting uh, just bef- you know leading up to what we're talking about now but um, um, 
we would uh, have things like play uh, just to backtrack a little bit you know we had a residency at a, a great pub in uh, Stoke Newington called the Three Crowns um, which was a really you know uh, such a, a great uh, you know bizarre mix of people you know you you if it was sort of you know you'd, you'd find it hard to believe if you kind of uh, saw it in a in a film you know it was just such a, a, a bizarre mix of uh, all sorts of people you know um but um yeah so um slightly sidetracking from what we were saying yes yeah, so the house of love uh taking off um yeah we uh we we began i think um you know we'd done a lot of supports over the over the sort of couple of first couple of years and then we um uh you know we were playing in, in our own right and we were building up you know a following and uh but before you know, just just slightly just sorry to pause you there um That's but right. did you go to the <laughs> i was rambling the, no, no, it's quality ramble <laughs> you know. but no did you ever go to the oh god the living room alan mcgee's living room and those yes. kind of little yeah things? yeah yeah, that came up recently. Someone were, I heard someone talking about, I think, about orange juice. Right. Because uh, Alan went down, came down from sort of Glasgow to to London and started his yeah. living room and then his you know, yeah. record label and yep. signed people like the Jasmine Minks, Lomas. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And such bands. I mean, he had an amazing roster of bands in the. In he did, he did. Yeah, so he yeah, was definitely he did. a player. So when was the first time yeah. you met Alan? Uh, I think Alan came to a rehearsal, House of Love rehearsal and we went to the local Greasy Spoon Cafe mm -hmm. uh, and had a chat then and he was super positive, you know, about what we were doing. I mean, there were a few occasions where Alan used to come to visit while we were rehearsing, so it's a little, probably a little blurry in my memory, but um, yeah, I can remember him being really positive and I can remember going to the offices that they had, Creation had an office in Clark and Well, and, you know, meeting him there and people, other staff members like Dick Green and who were all lovely. And uh, there was a woman called Laurence, I think, uh, although she might have joined later, um, but they were all great, really welcoming and super friendly. And it was, it was good. It was a good time. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, and so did you was... and did you have much kind of? Um, I mean, you were on with the. You know, I mean, you were sort of not. I suppose with the previous band, I suppose you didn't have too many managerial decisions you had to make. But they were on Fire Records, so that was obviously an experience. Interesting. Um, Previously, yeah. Fire, but were you? Yeah. Were there many labels that were kind of started to um, circulate like vultures in the air? Um. Well, in a way, you know, it was you mean pre-creation? Yeah, I just at that time yeah. when people started to see you live, and then you started to sort of mm. become a bit more of a name on the on the circuit, because obviously, you know, yeah. everyone's looking for the next, I don't know, the Smiths, I suppose. Or true, somebody. true. Yeah, I mean, I think with House, the House of Love, that happened. Um, before we were really picking up steam. I mean, basically what it was, um, I don't know, you know, originally when we gave them our demo, so we heard, um, apparently Alan didn't really, 
didn't think it was all he, he didn't like it or he, he wasn't bowled over by it let's put it that way but his partner at the time Yvonne or his wife as I think she was then really liked our demo tape and persuaded him to sign us um, and that that's how it all began and, and really in my memory that was kind of like there wasn't I don't remember if there were many other players. I know Guy told us, I think, see, Guy used to go and Guy Chadwick used to go and um, do the meetings, you know, on his own. Right. So he went, he went to meet Jeff Travis. He'd gone to meet Alan first before we ever met him. Um, so that was how it played out back then. So, and I, and I, you know, I think other than Jeff Travis and, and Alan, there may have been one other person. I don't recall who that was. Yes. Yes. So it wasn't like a, a, a yeah, it wasn't really like a, a sort of the bidding war. You know, the bidding war. <laughs> that, that came that came later. That was the, the major. So did you enjoy <clears throat> the process of the first album? Because obviously, you know, you, you've been in the band from the very mm-hmm. beginning. So was that a genuine <clears throat> experience working on the um, eponymous first album? Uh, it, it was. It was. It was very. Um, you know, it was a flow, you know, it's kind of like how people speak about uh, when creativity is uh, not, yeah. So people talk about the word flow, don't they? It was a flow. We had, mm. we had rehearsed, we knew the material really well. Um, we'd played numerous shows but we also, things also uh, grew in the studio and surprised us. Um, and, and that I think is what, those were the ingredients to, to that went into making it, it, the record that it, that it is. Yes, and did, your, and did your own playing change a lot in that short period of time? Because, you know, you were starting to capture quite an amazing sound here. I think it did, yeah. I th- I think when you're in the studio and you're in that kind of um, controlled environment, um, you know, you hear things much more clearly than you would on stage. And so you're, you know, you're, uh, and and I was, you know, I had used, been using effects units, lots of echo, lots of reverb. And um, and so that was just uh, stepped up, I suppose. You know, it's like let's have a second reverb. Let's have reverb on the reverb. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that was my mentality at the time. More reverb, and uh, you know, can we have more effects on there, please? Yes, and and were you conscious of other the other bands' sounds, albums that were coming out at that time? I was just thinking about people like I don't know, Hus- I don't know Husker Du or even U two during that sort of when they started so, to sort of get, yeah. get their big kind of album and big sound. Yes, um, yeah, U two. I, I I bought uh, the the Boy album when I was on holiday once in, in uh, I was in Scotland on holiday visiting relatives. And uh, I had some pocket money and I bought the, that album and uh, fully, you know, just absorbed that, just went 
off into that world, um, uh, you know, for numerous hours during the, our stay. Um, and um, yeah, and that was very influential, you know. Yes, yeah. I just wondered if the edge was kind of one of those <laughs> guitars you, you know, quite enjoyed. Yeah. Oh, very much so. Yeah, very much so. I mean, I've I've recently read um, their excellent biography, you know, U2 by U2, which I would recommend to any musician or, or anybody, actually. You know, yes. if you're not into the band, it's a fantastic read. And just reflected on their experiences of being young and like, we didn't really know what we were doing. You know, we just, we couldn't really play anybody else's songs. Like I, I you know, I felt like I, I, I really resonated with a lot of things that they'd said about their early career, you know, so in terms of like, as I say, they, they, they weren't, they, they were said they were, you know, by their own admission, they tried to play covers and it was sort of often just a disaster, um, but they just, had some kind of we're just going to do our thing you know and they just created something you know yes amazing yeah it was really yeah I I don't know. they did yeah they did some amazing songs um then so then sort of as the 80s progress kind of mm -hmm. i always go back to this um so the smiths break out 87 i think that's kind of a critical period there's kind of a massive change in music and then you know there's kind of a, a change in musical sort of styles in a way i mean not everything but there was kind of ecstasy came along suddenly there was this kind of big push for bands like you know the dance scene, the Happy Monday, Stone Roses, mm -hmm. Primal Scream, even the Soup Dragons, and that was amazing. They managed to do the crossover. Um, so there was a, yeah. there was quite a s sort of shift, wasn't there? But then you did have yeah. with the other, that kind of North London scene with people like, I don't know, My Bloody Valentine, Silverfish, The Faith Healers, Lush, Carter, The Unstoppable mm -hmm. Sex Machine. So there was quite an interesting sort of mix. And, and you mentioned yeah. there was a lot of squatting going on at that stage, yeah. phase in life, because I know that... Um, I don't know, Thatcher on Acid. I remember talking to some of them and they were on in the squat land. And also um, the ambulance station. Did you ever go to any events at the ambulance station in London? I did. Yes, I did go there once uh, and saw some marathon jam sessions. You know, um, I think there was a, yeah, like a 20, I think I saw like a 20 minute blues jam or something. Um, but there were, but it was, you know, there were other, things happening as well you know that were really interesting i you know i used to go to different different venues um went to the ambulance station there was a a place in campbell that was uh an ex, a, what had originally been a cinema and then a jeans warehouse called uh, dicky dirts yes I'm uh, <laughs> yeah um that was also uh, became a venue and i was uh involved in uh putting on well, if you can call it running an event, uh, I wouldn't quite go that far, but I was certainly involved in, um, you know, possibly pulling the generator from, uh, from uh, you know, a couple of streets away into the venue and sticking it in a back room and uh, trying to cobble some equipment together. So, Excellent. And did so you ever, really, uh, yeah. And did you ever meet the famous Dan Tracy? Um, Yes, I did. Uh, so, Dan, um, I got to know somebody uh, who was a musician uh, in a, a group um, called The Hangman's Beautiful Daughter. 
Oh God, yes. Um, yes. Uh, I, well, I was in a relationship with uh, a guitarist from that band. Is she in Las Vegas? I don't know what she's done since then. Uh, or what you mean now? Yeah. Quite possibly. Uh, her name was Sandy Cooley or Andy. Sandy Fleming. Yes. Um, yes, she introduced me to Dan. Um, and Dan came to live in our basement of, of the squat that I lived in. Um, so, yeah, Dan would be downstairs writing his, you know, epic, uh, epic songs. Um, nice. Yes, because yeah. the, yeah. the Hangman's beautiful daughter, I'm getting a bit confused with the, um, the name of the folk band from Scotland here. But yes, okay. I've done an interview with two of the members. And I think okay. Sandy's one one of them, and she's in Vegas now. And the other one, okay, I can't remember his name, but he was the um, critical guy, I think, in the band. He was the kind of musical. Yeah, he, he was the chap. But then they also had the famous yes. Phil King. He was in the yes, the that's right. They did. They did. Yes, Love, then, lovely, lovely Phil King. Yeah. yeah, not many people sort of go on about his pioneer period in that band. It was quite yeah. brief, I think. And then Lush yeah. came along and, and yeah, you, you came. Phil, oh, right. Phil, Phil was like a, a beacon of sanity <laughs> in that <laughs> in that period of time, you know. Yes, well, it, I mean, with my my recollection, you know, of someone a sensible person. <laughs> yeah, I can't remember. He was in another band, wasn't he? Well, he's been loads, but there was another band who was on the the C eighty six cassette that he was in for a short. The Servants, that's the one. Okay, yeah, yeah, mm. oh, yeah. Amazing. So many. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can yeah, write. It all, yeah, it, it's like it's, a it's, 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 it's like a soap opera, isn't it? Really, it is. Yeah, it's a soap opera, or a you know, it's a Bayer tapestry of music. No, just like you know, and there's certain people that just go through the whole thing, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. Just, um, yeah. Yes, yeah. certain characters, yes. but you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like uh, who was? Uh, it's a guy I, I got to know again briefly in Brighton, who was in uh, the television personalities. Um, it's not Swell Maps, is it? No, it's not. No. Um, oh, I'm really annoyed that I've forgotten his name. He was a guitarist. Um, anyway, it will come back to me. Yeah, do because um, it's always, yes. it's always kind of a fascinating story. Just, all that, the living room, you know, yeah. record yeah, yeah. and Tracy, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. station. You know, someone's going to write the film, the musical. Aren't yeah. they? But mm -hmm. then, what's the process for your or the second album with the House of Love? Because obviously, you know, you get a huge amount of traction. You've you've played the art centres. You're probably up to university standard. Yeah. You've got yes. You know, you've got a fan base. People are you're on the front of the NME. My God. Yeah. John yeah, Peel session. Right. All sorts. Yeah, I know, I know. And you know, I I'm not quite sure quite where I was at, at the time. I was sort of aware of it going on, but also there was a part of me that wasn't really in, quite in touch with that reality. Uh, because I suppose, in a way, you know, it is it is distant from your day to day. You know, I, I I can remember a period of time where I was uh, briefly, very briefly, working a night shift at, at New Covent Garden Fruit and Vegetable Market, and you know, we were on the cover of the NME and stuff. You know, and um, so it was it was a quite a sort of different worlds there. You know, 
I would imagine um, it was very strange. It was it was strange because I think I'd just been living on the dole, uh, smoking dope for a couple of years, you know, and and then suddenly you're like, you get the call, you know, and you're sort of like, right, okay, well we're just gearing up for, you know, you know, top of the pops or whatever it's going to be, you know. Yes, yeah, kind of like whoa, 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 you know. <laughs> that was <laughs> that was kind of how partly how I felt I think at the time that there was something running subconsciously you know well I think it happened I remember doing an interview with Fast Eddie from Motorhead and it was like you know on a building yard or doing some boat building and then suddenly he was like oh can I go today because actually we're <laughs> going to be we're going to be on top of the pops and um mm-hmm. I don't want to miss watching that because you can't you know mm-hmm. video it so um mm-hmm. and suddenly it was like right the band are starting you know after years of not getting anywhere mm-hmm. thinking mm-hmm. let's just quit this is not going to happen and then suddenly right we're we're, we're suddenly motorhead mm-hmm. and we do do three classic albums so did it mm-hmm. have that same kind of oh my god the rocket's taken off yeah it, it did um but i didn't really take off with it you know um and that was where you know the, there were some problems arose um as as is quite well documented you know so um yeah i just didn't I didn't, I just didn't adjust well to the exposure, you know, I, I think lots of people, you know, who just are great at just, just going with it, you know, and just like, yeah, this is, this is what you're meant to do. You just kind of, you know, you just, okay, let's go, you know, but I, I had no, um, I didn't really have any uh, stability or grounding in my personal life. Yes. And uh, add to that, you know, as I say, a little bit of experimentation with drugs um, wasn't a good mix. But I think also on top of that, I also had, um, you know, when you you're someone that has a lot of insecurity. So, as I say, that those things combined didn't didn't uh, didn't really, you know, I didn't really get off on the good foot there, but no. um, I managed to, you know, I managed to pick up the threads and carry on with it, you know, after a, a, a sort of like a difficult period of about six months. Um, but, um, but yeah. And then, and then uh, so, you know, House of Love were doing really well. Uh, I managed to hang in there albeit you know by the skin of my teeth you know like turning up late for things or deciding to instead of going to the studio on a given day I'll just go on on a taxi ride jolly and go and go around and buy records in HMV and turn up at the studio like five hours late and just daft things like that that you know um can you remember your uh, the the experience of when you recorded you know I expect everyone else shine on because yeah. shine the, that coming together, you know, it's, yeah. it's up there with uh-huh. the senseless things. Um, too much mm-hmm. kissing, isn't it? As a, an indie classic of our times. Yeah, I can remember doing that. The, those sort of early, like what's called the German album kind of recordings were, were done um, down at a studio down in Waterloo. Um, Alaska I think it might have been and uh, yeah I can remember doing that I remember um, 
it just being really a lot of fun, you know, and really exciting. Um, just when something just sounds, you know, really tight and say it jumps out, you know, the whole thing, there was, there was a, a certain energy in the track, you know, when that first kind of beat kicks in, it just jumps out of the speaker at you, you know, on the yes. original, uh, on the original shine on. And, um, and that was the impact that we got while we were recording it, you know. And who was the producer on that first kind of session? Well, I've, 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 unfortunately, I've forgotten his name. We had we didn't have a producer as such. It was we were working with an engineer, and I feel really bad now. Uh, I can't remember his name. Um, I'd have to get back to you on that. Sorry. Yes, well, that's all right. No, I just wanted to uh, the person you were working with at that stage. Yeah, I've forgotten his name. Yeah, and when the, and when. It was kind of interesting because I did an interview with dear old Chris Spedding yeah. and his CV is yeah. extraordinary, you know, and he's like, he's played on all these classics. And I said, yeah. when you were recording them, did you think, wow? And he said, no, not at all. I just wondered if you, <laughs> it's like, that's amazing. You know, it's um, like, did you think, God, that, I mean, it was, that was special. I, no, I think it was just like, you don't, I don't think you really think in that way. You don't, you don't, you're not quite so, I mean, it was just, this is, you know, it was just kind of, this is good, you know, this is, this is what I want my music to sound like, or, you know, our music to sound like. Um, it's good. And before we move on, I can mention a couple of other people. Um, there was um, Pat Collier, um, oh, yeah. was a, a one of the producers um, who was, you know, uh, helping us out that was on the you know he did a work on some of the early records like destroy the heart and um you know, yeah so i'd have to uh, go back to some notes to remember who else was involved at the time I remember there was an engineer called jessica unfortunately right. forgotten forgotten her surname it'll probably just come back to me during the the course of the rest of the interview so uh, <laughs> you know. so then and then sort of well when that the album comes out do you do any touring with it or do you sort of yeah uh yeah yeah we just we were just doing gigs and it was like okay you've got a gig coming up you know it's really important there's going to be lots of journalists there you know and then the next one and the next one and so on you know uh, each and it was building you know brilliant um, so yeah yeah we we were uh we were on the university, the college and the university circuit for about a year before things started to take off. And then also during that period. So we were then from supporting bands like the Mighty Lemon Drops, uh, who were brilliant to us, you know, lent us guitars and, and were you couldn't wish for better people to be well, around. Dave Newton, just yeah. such a nice guy. Um, yeah. They were so so kind to us, um, and from then, you know, from that period, then suddenly, you know, we were we yeah we were pulling in, you know, three four hundred people. I would have thought, and more. 
I'm all. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was like, I, was going to, I thought you were going to yes. say thousand. Yeah. I mean, they, that, uh, <clears throat> sort of the, sw the switch over, you know, the changeover, you know, sort of like yes. playing like, something like the Marquee or something, you know, to a, a, a big... Uh, well, you do have Norwich. We have the, you have the Arts Centre, which is the church, <clears throat> like 250 mm -hmm. people, and then you get the waterfront, possibly 500, mm -hmm. and then UEA, which is probably about 1,200, mm -hmm. 1,500, I think. Um, we don't yeah. really have a bigger venue in Norwich, actually, so um, that's mm -hmm. the end of that. You have to end up in mm -hmm. Kings. So did you sort of go through the venues of most cities, towns in that way of like, oh, right, they're, they're a bit bigger this time? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, we definitely did. Um, I mean, when we began touring, it was places like, um, well, I mean, I'd say not somewhere like the Lead Mill, we would be supporting at the lead mill and then we would end up headlining the lead mill in Sheffield or, you know, um, some of the other, I mean, uh, there's certain venues that you just remember, I think just because they were really good nights, uh, early gigs with like places like Burberry's in Birmingham for anyone that remembers yes. Burberry's. Um, <laughs> and, um, as I've mentioned, the marquee, you know, we played the marquee once or twice. Um, yeah, so things were getting bigger. You know, as I say, some of the, there were not so many standout gigs in terms of actual venues, apart from say London ones, because I think we did play a lot of university halls, you know, yes. in those days. So, so you, you couldn't always, well, I couldn't always distinguish <laughs> them that that well uh, well i guess yeah i mean then you had bands who were really smooth and slick with the sundays i suppose they came along and started to um get quite a big student following as well didn't they the sundays yeah, yeah. so then so then sort of as we hit the 90s then you you leave the band the house of love is this yes. is it right like 1991 uh it was 89 end oh. of 89 I, I, ch I checked it. Yeah, it, so it was December 1989. December 1989. Yes. So was it yeah. um, one of those horrible experiences? Um, it was, yeah. I was a little kind of, you know, numb to it. I, I basically was just trying, I think, just push people's buttons, not even really intentionally being a pain in the arse, but but being a pain in the arse all the same. And it was during a time where, you know, I'd been through a, a rocky patch personally, then sort of got back on track, but then was just a little bit, I don't know what it was. I was confused or unhappy and, and I was just, um, things just, there was a tension, you know, in the group. And I don't think the tension was all down to me. I think there was a lot, obviously a lot of expectations on us and, uh, you know, um, and, and basically, you know, as I say, it was just one particular uh, time, you know, in uh, traveling back from a gig in Wales. And um, I, I just pushed it too far, you know, and was, uh, asked to you know step out of the van and um <laughs> leave the band you know uh you know yeah i was we had two vans at the time one was with the crew and um 
and yeah so it was like no you're not driving with us anymore you know and that was it blimey yes yeah. so that was um that was very similar to fast eddie's experience so <laughs> when you leave a band do you have any is there any kind of thing you have to do or you don't go uh, to hr do you you don't go and say oh there you go <laughs> you're off the band. oh here's well, your here's, here's a guitar that's yours yeah, yeah, no, there wasn't any of that. I think my stuff was in storage somewhere, so that just stayed in storage, in the band storage, and I had access to that. It wasn't like, you know, withheld. Um, not that it would have been, but uh, no, I mean, all credit to Alan McGee and Creation and people like Ed Ball and, um, you know, they were, they basically paid a retainer for me for a year or so after that split, um, which was very kind of them. And uh, and yeah, and it was just like, so I think might have had one or one conversation. I think I had a conversation with Simon who stepped in to replace me in the band. And he said, are you, are you sure you're all right with this? You know, I've been asked to join the band because we'd been friends. And I said, yeah, yeah, it's fine, it's fine, you know. Um, and and that was it. And it was a kind of, yeah, period of um, time to uh, sort of reflect and take stock. And yeah, it was a bit of a shock, really, you know. Yes, um, well, I suppose five years nearly in that yeah, particular, and yeah. two albums and lots of touring. But yeah. then you meet Bic. Yeah, um, yes, I did. I, I've, I first actually, I met... Uh, the drummer of Levitation, um, Dave Francolini, when uh, I was on tour with House of Love because he was playing in a support band called Something Pretty Beautiful. Um, and so Dave and I, a bit like Guy and, and myself uh, at, in the early days of the House of Love, um, Levitation to begin with was at the very early period, like Dave and myself, um, but yeah, I met Bick around South London, around Camberwell, and um, um, and we'd got to know one another and I'd invited him to come down uh, and do some jamming uh, during some studio sessions that I've been running. Um, yes. I think I, I used to, <clears throat> as I think Bick may have mentioned, you know, um, he came down and uh, you know, there was uh, basically just, I'd just book time in the studio and just invite people to come and turn up. <laughs> come come along and, and come along and join in, you know, come and play something. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> yeah. It would be a blast, you know. Um, so, yeah. And you, and you sort of create quite a distinctive sound straight away with the, the levitation, don't you? Yeah. Um, so... Yes, yeah, so to, to move on from that very early period, yeah, we, we started rehearsing and it really clicked and uh, they were all really great musicians. Um, Bob White, Lawrence O'Keefe, um, Bick, Hayes, Dave, Francolini and myself, uh, we started rehearsing regularly and it came together very, very quickly. Um, most of the, you know, a lot, all the material was just coming out of jamming and then we would start writing uh, in small like you know small groups within the 
you know, in pairs or in threes, would go um, and record around somebody's house one weekend and start demoing. And I'd say it all came together really quickly. Um, and uh, yeah, and you know, we, we, I suppose in a way, because of, partly because of what I'd done in House of Love, there was a bit of interest. So we were able to, you know, fast track it a little bit. Yes. And did it feel quite a relief to have a different, being a different group, a different <clears throat> dynamic? I just wondered if you were feeling a little bit more like, oh, this is a fresh start. We can, we, we've got a clean slate. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say uh, there was probably part of what was happening with me in levitation where I was on the rebound to give it a, a sort of relation, relationship yes. connotation, <laughs> you know. Um, so I was like, you know, I'll show you, you know, that kind of thing. I think that was part of a, a bit of a driver behind levitation, which maybe is sort of a parent in some of the aggressive uh, nature of some of the music. Um, but um, but it was also what everybody was, you know, working quite very quite harmoniously and um, really massively enthusiastic, you know, and uh, yes. Amazing because you get loving, to, loving life, you know. loving yes, and you signed to Ultimate Records, which is yeah. I can't remember. I think it was a woman called Joe used to do the PR for Ultimate, didn't she? I don't know. She went on to yeah. to do the Green Man and start that uh -huh. festival. In, oh, right, in, okay. But yeah, so okay. what was your the process like, kind of when you entered the studio? Was was it? Did you have the songs <laughs> all fully formed, and was it all going quite well? Um. Yes, we, in a way, this is like another one of those, you know, revisiting, like I mentioned this studio, Elephant, earlier. Levitation uh, recorded, I think, four songs at Elephant Studios. Um, one of those was the early version of Smile, uh, Rosemary Jones, Paid in Kind, may have just been three songs it might have been four I can't remember the other one um and that again you know just sounded like yeah this is good you know we've got something here you know um, yes. we signed the publishing deal shortly after doing those demos um, we were actually mixing in MCA's uh, MCA publishers publishers studio that's where we mixed the very original version of Smile. Um, but the, the recordings, uh, the, the levitation recordings were a bit more like, you know, what would you call it? The sort of uh, classic uh, recording adventures uh, of like staying up all night, four people with their hands on the mixing desk, you know, um, passing around the jazz cigarettes um, and, uh, you know, and having a, a really, you know, great time. Um, yes, and then having to try and work out what to use. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, a lot of the recording, some of the recording of Levitation isn't sonically 
great <laughs> because um, because I think the engineer was also smoking a lot of dope as well. Who but that was have, all right. Who did you have recording with you? Or um, who, who was your oh, mate? Well, we used to work with Ken Gardner a lot um, back then, and uh, and he was a great guy, you know. He was a lovely man, and um, I, I'm not. I'm not saying that those recordings. I think my sound was a bit iffy. I'm not. I think other people had a, a good sound, so maybe the finger there points at me rather than at anybody else. Yes. No. We're not. Uh, we're, <laughs> we're not worried about Paul Ken. But yes, were you? But but, your first you know, album on what label was your first one? Uh, first album. Yes. Well, we was were this on, rough uh, trade or ultimate. Yeah, I think it was. Um, we had a satellite deal with the first levitation. You know, need for. Do you mean the, the? Well, we did a lot of EPs first on Ultimate, and then the Need for Not album was um, a satellite deal. I think it was Capital EMI. Um, I can't remember who else was involved, but. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And again, it was an incredibly intense time. And what was your experience and memory of touring like? Did you enjoy being on the road with Levitation? I did, yeah. Yeah, it was good. It was, um, we had, it was, you know, the thing about Levitation um, <laughs> was that uh, it was just so funny, you know, um, it was just uh, the, the interviews that we did, you know, the kind of um, people were so kind of uh, outspoken and had, you know, uh, strong opinions <laughs> and, and, and very kind of, you know, left of centre ideas. Uh, including myself, um, it, it was, you know, kind of interviews were quite a, 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 an experience, you know, quite an event. Yes, um, because I remember the 90s, because I, I went through quite a new agey kind of period. I know, surprise. But yes, there was a lot of kind of explorations into things like ley line, sweat lodges, you know, I don't yeah. know people were doing the five rhythms left, right and centre. There was a lot of... Ex yeah, you know, yeah. Like, people trying to discover who they were and heading off mm -hmm. to India for winters and stuff like that. Yeah. And you couldn't yeah. go into a party without having <laughs> someone trying to smudge you and having crystals <laughs> coming around. There was a lot of, yeah. you know, That's right. yeah, yeah, yeah. homeopathy. Yeah, and, uh, so were you also going through a bit of a kind of exploration of spiritual searching and um, uh, all that? Yeah, I think it was you might, what you might call the, the first stage spiritual searching, you know, the, the Jostic phase. Nice. Um, it was good, you know. Mac Chomper. Um, we love that. Yeah, yeah. And also because um, Big comes from quite a kind of a world of, mm. yeah, I don't know, festy bands and psychedelic bands and free festivals. Yeah. Don't, so did, did you get quite kind of excited by that kind of alternative culture and scene? Because obviously during this time, there was the kind of rise of Britpop. So obviously Britpop mm. wasn't where you were heading, was it? It was more like... No. The travellers, the levellers, yeah, all was. that kind of yeah. here and now Hawkwind kind of yeah. 
Yes, all that kind of stuff. So I just thought that harmoniously, you know, it would the band. Did it feel a bit like you were more of a gang in this band? Um, yeah, I mean, House of Love also felt like a gang, but in a, in a different way, and maybe a little bit more cooler. You know, um, trying to think of the the context of, you know, um, yeah, I mean, Levitation. I suppose some of the. I'd say that House of Love. I felt like we were maybe not the greatest communicators personally, uh, although Guy was very charismatic. I think on a personal level, we were, weren't great at, you know, verbally communicating with one another, mm -hmm. um, but we com communicated musically, whereas with Levitation, things felt more open in that respect and freer. And, and as you, as you, as you, uh, as you suggested, um, I was very, I was excited by uh, the stories that I heard about some of the, you know, the things that Bick had uh, been involved with, like free festivals, and Bick and Bob, um, and to some extent David as well. Um, you know that they were really interesting stories, and they were kind of, it was kind of like. Um, it was like more than folklore, really. Um, something that you didn't hear about in the news, apart no. from maybe maybe the bean field. The um, bean field, the battle line. Uh, yeah. Um, so, you know, and I'd. It's interesting that I'd been around Camberwell, you know, probably at sim, you know a similar time to when the free festivals were happening, but I didn't ever go get there you know if you know what I mean so, mm -hmm. um but yeah it was uh yeah so that did definitely capture my imagination um but I was you know I wouldn't say I was particularly uh involved with it apart from maybe like sleeping in a teepee at Reading Festival once um after Levitation played you know nice it's as long as they don't light the fire it's always smoking <laughs> That was the thing. They'd always say, oh, it never normally smokes. And it's like, I'm, I'm sort of having an asthma mm. attack. It was a nightmare. Yeah, but that, that sort of spiritual seeking came later, really. Right. I'd say in a more, you know, uh, in a more, let's say, um, in a more clear-headed way. Structured. It, was more, yeah. it sounded more structured. But then mm. the levitation doesn't last that long, does it? It's like 93. No. And then you, and then you sort of... And I... You quit the band. I, you do your yeah, Ziggy Stardust. I did. I did. Yeah. Very. Uh, yes. Uh, that wasn't very well thought through. Um, no, I, I, I did. I, I, I left the band and I always feel, you know, carried some, uh, you know, guilt about the way that was done, even though, you know, I was feeling... <clears throat> You know, I was thinking about this earlier on today and, you know, you, you sort of, you know, why that happened. I, I didn't feel, it, the reason I, I, I did that, I left the band, uh, was because I didn't feel like I was, having said that, you know, a few moments earlier, that communication was really good, you know, in the early stages, at that period, 
in the later period, I didn't feel like I didn't feel like I was so involved anymore, but that was really just down to me in my head. You know, I felt separate, but that was just, I think, just something that I was going through. Um, and I also wasn't quite, it, the way the music had gone wasn't, it got increasingly heavier and that, and that also wasn't necessarily really my thing. I think I was just, you know, you're, you're, you're there, you're front and center of something and it's taken off and, and everyone around you is like, you know, they're into the, uh, making it more kick-ass. Um, and I wasn't sure whether that was agreeing with me really. You yes. Know? Um, uh, although I do love the music that we did. I love the, you know, it's a very powerful sound, but I think actually being, the person that's there doing it as opposed to listening to it was a different a different thing altogether and um and i yeah and as i say i was it was a stupid way of, of of going about things but i also felt i was didn't know uh you know how else i was gonna go i felt like if i'd sat down in a room and discussed it with our manager and the band and there was no way I was going to be able to leave the band that's how I that's how uh insecure I was as a person at the time you know I thought that I would just be sort of talked around into carrying on and I I didn't really feel I had it in me you know yes it's got to be happen it's got to happen hasn't it really so you yes yeah, so anyway my headphones there <laughs> that's all right that's that's um yeah so so when when that finishes you know you, mm. you you sort of you obviously get completely drawn in you know you don't go no way twice is enough no it's like i'm gonna go for it again so you you do paradise <laughs> estate well, what what's paradise your, estate was that your next oh, band no no but uh, that um that is a fantastic name for a band um that's Paradise Estate, wasn't that um, the television personalities? Oh, it might be. But who do you team yeah. up? Do you team up with Clive Giblin? Uh, yes, yes. So then there was the early stages of the band Cradle. Right. Yeah. Um, and, so. Um, and this is, and did you meet Carl Blake at this stage in your life? He was in I a band have... called Shock-Headed Peters with Clive at one stage. I, I may have met him, but I don't recall that. That's fair enough. Um, but yeah, so you and so you so you form a, a band with Clive. We we sort of formed a kind of we had a kind of like songwriting uh, experiment, or you know, Clive um, was able to help me uh, because he, by you know engineering. Um, he had some recording equipment, so we worked on some material together. Right. Um, but Cradle and, is your next band that you bring together. Yes. Right. So what's yeah. the lineup of Cradle? Uh, Cradle was uh, myself, my partner at the time, Caroline, um, a, a guy called Ian Mundweiler, and um, there were various other musicians 
uh, who came into that, who were, you know, sort of on a kind of session, uh, semi-flexible sort of basis, you know. Yes. Um, there was a guy called Richard Barber as well, who was a sort of a, a sort of permanent member for us as long as, almost as long as it lasted, you know. Yeah. And um, um, was this, I mean, it's kind of interesting when you have a partner in a band. Did that, did that feel quite a different dynamic again? Uh, yeah, it was, you know, it was a sort of, uh, it was a different dynamic. Yeah, it was, um, you know, she was quite literary, um, had, had a lot of, you know, more knowledge of the English language than I did and would write really good lyrics. Um, it wasn't, you know, it was, it was something where we were kind of playing around with the idea of being a band rather than, I mean, we made records, but the whole kind of touring thing never really took off or anything like that. So it, it, it was just something that I was, you know, writing music, demoing things, um, and we did songs together. You know, I would do things independently and then we would write together and then sometimes we would write with the band and, and um, yeah, we, we, you know, we made an al a couple of albums, um, one, only one of which was released and um, it was a nice time, you know, it was a good, a good time in my life. Yes. Oh, so you felt more like things were sort of holistically were going better. Yeah, certainly, you know, it, it sort of uh, felt like a, a sort of, you know, it was a, yeah, it was an, it was a sort of fun time, but in, in a way, the band kind of never really connected. Um, it, it, it didn't have enough, uh, enough momentum to really yes. go forwards, you know. How do you manage to keep everything kind of together? I'm just thinking, you know, like at this stage in life, you know, or that stage, did you, I mean, sort of, you know, I don't know, financially, how do you sort of manage to juggle all this? You know, because obviously House of Love, probably quite successful, Levitation, who knows. But then by yeah. this stage, do you, we're thinking, you know, do you have to have a, another side hustle in life to keep things ticking over? Um... Well, at that period of time, uh, during the, you know during the period with Cradle, I mean, we were going between signing on and then like having a budget for an album and living off of that. Yes. And then signing on again, you know, and maybe yeah, even moonlighting, doing a bit of work every now and again. You know? Yes, it does. It when. It does um, happen, actually. Yes. So just just doing whatever you could to get by. Yeah. I mean, I didn't have a, a, a sort of any other jobs then. Uh, that came later, you know. Yes. Um, yeah. You just hustle. Um, it's all about the hustle, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. You did. I mean, you know, at the time when, when you know when Levitation, sorry, when um, Cradle uh, were on a major or, or a subsidiary of a major, you know, we were on a wage. Um, we were on a sort of record company retainer, which was for about a year. Yes. Um, 
and they would ring us up and say, is the album ready yet? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nearly. Sounding great, you know. <laughs> yeah. Be in touch. Good. Yeah, so it was a bit like one of those, really. Oh. Although we, although we did make an album. I mean, it's not like we never, we never got around to actually recording anything, but it was just... We were sort of like, oh yeah, we should. We, we really need to do some songs, don't we? <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, we, we better, we better get some songs together, haven't we? You know, yeah, is it shit. quite hard to keep disciplined when you sort of just think, oh, thank God, we've got a year to to relax and record? Is it difficult as a musician? Yeah, it it, it just was then because I I just think, you know, in terms of my opportunity, you know, the opportunities that I've had, I've been very. Uh, you know, I've been very fortunate and and I will be the first to admit that I didn't really capitalise on those, you know, as, as some people might. And there, there's, you know, there are reasons for that. Um, and now I realise that, you know, in order to try and get something, you know, through uh, and, and well, you know, nowadays it is that thing of like having to juggle work and trying to uh, put records out, you know. Yes. Um, and that's, that's a, it's a, it's a different world to what it was then. If only I knew now what I knew then. Oh, if only you then what I know now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really, you know, I, I, I was a little bit, you know, um, I was pretty naive and, you know, in some way, you know, you, it's, it's hard to explain. I, I was, I was, I would say, to sort of sum it up, I was in always into music, but I wasn't into business, you know. Right. So, so that and that's a problem when you want to uh, have a, a successful career in music. Yes, I know some people manage to slightly work that one out, don't they? I mean, during yeah. then, I mean, during the rest of the nineties, you know, you sort of you go from cradle, and then you have another band, don't you? Monkey Seven, which is yeah. Sam Smith Which was and Nick Webb. Yeah, Nick Webb uh, and Sam Smith. Not not that Sam Smith, another no, Sam Smith. Another one. Um, but um, that was that was great. That that band was like uh, a project where you you not purely doing it for fun, but it was a really fun thing to do at the time. It was unlike you know, the music was unlike anything I'd done before because it was really like, like sample based with with the, some live instruments over the top. And it was a real departure and uh, it was a real breath of fresh air. The people that I was, wor I was working with um, were, you know, we were we were focused and we, we, we did gigs and we, we were recording and putting out singles, but it was very sort of, um, I'd say the singer, Sam, you know, he had a vision and direction of what he wanted to do. And I was just party to that really at the time. Yes. And, um, and it was, it was, um, I think I discovered the enjoyment of doing music without uh, the continual, like, how's this going to be received by the enemy? type of head you know yes 
It's quite it's quite um, a, a nice moment, really, isn't it? When yeah, it, that that that's what I'd say about my experiences with Monkey Seven. You know. Yes, yeah. but then then in the O years, you know, you have the great sort of you know return of the House of Love. So how did how did that yeah. kind of come about? You know, how did this the the, the, the meeting of the band the, again? Yeah, um, the meeting of the band was instigated by. Um, uh, our original agent, Mick Griffiths, um, who has sadly passed away uh, last year. Um, uh, Mick had contacted both Guy and myself and, and said, hey, why don't you two guys, why don't you just, uh, you know, have a chat and, uh, see, you know, have a go at doing something. I think there was some... Um, it was around some kind of event or something, you know, that he said, oh, you should, you know, you should get chat to one another, you know. Um, and he, yeah, he was the person that uh, was the catalyst for us getting back together. Um, uh, Pete, uh, you know, Pete Evans, the original drummer, uh, rejoined. Chris, the original bass player, declined. Um, by that time, we'd sort of lost contact with Andrea, and obviously she'd already left the group way back, so yeah. that wasn't that wasn't really a consideration. Um, and um, I knew a guy called Matt Jury through teaching, um, who uh, joined the band on bass, <clears throat> um, and that really seemed to be a good fit. You know, him and Pete, Matt and Pete, really hit it off. Matt was a great uh, diplomat. I'm not sure we would have stuck together for as long as we did without Matt in the band. Um, so it was all, you know, that that worked. It worked well. Yes. Um, <clears throat> but, um, you know, unlike groups like Suede, um, this time we, we, you know, we collectively didn't really capitalise on. I mean, we, you know, we when we started back together, it was about, we we first started rehearsing about 2002 <clears throat> and then we put a record out in 2005 2006 um i can't i think it was 2006 by the time it was actually released uh days run away album and and i think what happened with house of love it was just too stop starty um we were all quite you know all had jobs and we could do a tour, you know, once a year or at best twice a year. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and unlike, you know, people like Slow Dive and Suede, you know, we didn't really capitalise on that comeback. And we may have sort of slightly missed the trend as well, because I think towards the latter part of uh, House of Love's come, you know, House of Love 2, let's say, then it became like the shoegaze thing was becoming really big again and Chapter House and people were, I think Chapter House reformed or something, didn't they? Or yeah. whether, they, whether they'd ever I gone away, I don't know. I think Seven but, and, um, yes. <coughs> yeah, but I was certainly, bands, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, because it is kind of a tricky one, isn't it? Because, you know, if it's too soon after the band breaks up, it's like no one really cares. But then after a period of time, there's a curiosity and... Um, yeah. Yeah. interest but then you you record two albums i mean you last longer yeah. on the set you know the phase the two than you, yeah i mean yeah. but was it much more of a you know you were balancing other parts of your life rather than just sort of doing the band full on 
Yes, yeah, we were balancing other parts of our life and, you know, um, there was no, I don't think there was a period where, like, we, we know, we, Guy and his partner managed the band and there was never a period where um, we sort of said, right, this is it, you know, let's go for it, you know, let's, um, let's see if we can really make this, open this up again. I suppose towards the latter part, doing the show at the Roundhouse and that tour, then that's when the, the big interest was really created, you know, right towards the, or the end of my time with them, you know. Yes. Are you, are you pleased with the two albums, Days Run Away and also She Paints Words in Red? I, think, I prefer She Paints Words in Red. I think that was a, you know, a more fully realised album. Uh, yeah, I was happy with that. It, it was, you know, we did the best I think we could with the, uh, the parameters that were available, you know, with the budget and the time that we yeah. had. Yeah. And was it the case then that, you know, 2018 after the Roundhouse and that small tour, did you have to, did you sort of sit down again and decide what to do with, you know, being in the band? I mean, what happens next? No, I mean, it was just some offers of shows came in. Um, uh, you know, I declined uh, the offer to go and play in the States. And that has been the thing that was really the sort of that things kind of unraveled after that. Uh, what was the, what from was my the position playing in the states? Oh, it was just an offer. It was like um, you know, West Coast, some West Coast shows. Yes, um, but I wasn't I wasn't in a very good place in myself at the time, and I uh, I didn't feel I could confidently take it on. Yes. Yeah. Um, and uh, and so I declined. And then what's happened since then has happened. You know, Guy has drafted in other people in order to to do those dates. You know, and and did you did you enjoy touring? Did we play in live? I have. Yeah. Um, you know, to date, I've always enjoyed being a live musician. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But did you enjoy playing Europe? Oh, I love playing in Europe. Yeah. But America. Yeah. America, I never really experienced it, you know, and I know people who talk about, you know, have always said how great they, you know, they had such an amazing time and, you know, reading like U2's book, uh, you know, it was kind of like, oh yeah, I sort of, I get it now, you know, I can see how that would be amazing, you know, but it just... Um, but is it, but it, actually it's quite interesting because most of the bands I do these interviews, they're always... Actually, they, they often break up after five years, the second or third album and the dynamics yeah. and the lack of money is the two things. But but also the other one is often people go, oh, we toured America and we came back and broke up. And they often say, God, it was horrendous touring America. It was just, it, it just is yeah. so hard and so yeah. brutal and exhausting. So not, I mean, most indie yeah, bands, like, most indie bands hate it. It's like travel, travel, mm -hmm. travel, play mm -hmm. gig, travel travel you know and it's like I'm shattered you know I mean yeah and quite a few stories of people just you know I don't know losing the plot really and, and right. yeah. realizing they've just been in the bathroom 
thinking they were having a conversation with the person and they were actually standing and looking at the mirror and going, oh my God, I just did, had no idea. <laughs> so it's a bit of a strange one, I think, you know. It sounds um, familiar. It can, it kind of. <laughs> I think that was when he thought, I, perhaps I need to give this up. Yeah. I can't keep touring. I mean, and having yeah. conversations with people and then realise I'm just talking to a mirror. So, mm. um, yes, yeah. it's, it I was, mean, yeah, difficult, difficult really, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, I, I say, so, you know, I've heard, a, 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 like, you know, a few people said they had a really great time there, you know, and, uh, you know, and I think it was because House of Love never really, only really went there once or twice before, you know, and didn't really um, do so much over there. No, it's yeah, true. yeah. I just, I just really wasn't feeling it. So no, that's fair enough. So did you have to sort of have a, that conversation with Guy and people to say um, uh, I'm not in the <clears> band, or did you just no, 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 no? It was um, no. Guy just he just decided that he didn't want to be in two bands anymore you know well not to be in two bands anymore you know he he put his session he got his thing together with some session players to do this american thing um and 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 then but then decided i'm just going to do this now you know i'm not going to do old house of love i'm just going to do this new house of love right yes so he's like but still playing the original House of Love material. Yes. But just as a yeah. new band. God, yeah. did you did you have to go, oh, that's a bit odd? I did, yeah. I was like, because, you know, he seemed, he, he was, um, it was just, yeah, strange, you know, um, that he would put these new people over, like, you know, uh, Matt and Pete, yeah, as sure. as players, you know, um, I didn't get that. No, oh, that's horrendous, actually, isn't it? Because you two, you know, obviously had such history. So yeah, I know it's uh, it's a shame. Yeah, it must be very odd. I guess. I mean, did it feel? God, actually, it's strange how much I keep thinking of Fast Eddie and Motorhead. But you know, when he he was kind of like ousted from the band. And he's like, yeah, but that's my band, man. You know, you can't oust yeah. me. Like, I am, <clears throat> I am ousted, aren't I? There's no, there's no going back. I'm being kicked out of the band. But he's like, I'm. That's third of that is mine. Did you feel a sort of ownership of the band? I did, yeah, yeah, I did. I felt like after thirty years, I felt that Pete Evans and myself had some stake in in the House of Love, you know, as a band. Yes. God, that must be very strange to know that they're still going to be doing it, but without the kind of core members. Yeah, yeah. But in some ways it's 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 you know the 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 glass half full side is it it, it nudged me into um you know actually working on some music and writing some songs. So Yes. That's that's very positive, yeah, to take and away. Did, from and it. and did you say you're you're now also teaching? Yes, yeah. So, so when did uh, when did your teaching career begin? Uh, that began in 2000, uh, 2001. Oh. Uh, you know, we, so I'd, I'd tried a few lessons 
in the year before, I think. I, yeah, so really uh, properly in about 2001, um, I was uh, looking for some flexible work and then just decided, uh, well, didn't decide, I came across a, uh, a music school in Brighton. Uh, it was a private sort of music school that they did all sorts of lessons uh, on instruments. And um, I learned how to be a guitar teacher. Yeah, that's fantastic. Has that helped your sort of just, just life, you know? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's another string to my bow, so to speak, you know, and it's, uh, I'm playing music, you know, I'm still there with a guitar in my hands and or a bass uh, or whatever it might be, you know. Um, so, yeah, so it's been... I've, I went from um, working in the music school to um, working uh, in a college uh, in Brighton called Access to Music, um, where I worked there for 13 years. And that was a, a fantastic experience of, you know, every year a new sort of cohort of people coming in, being really creative, doing gigs you know, sometimes help depping for different bands because their bass player had left the course or yes. the drummer had, didn't turn up on that day. So I became quite sort of a, you know, a, a sort of a multi-instrumentalist just by uh, by accident. Yes, basically um, Prince. <laughs> um, yeah, so, um, and that was, you know, a really, uh, that was a big that's been a big part of my um, sort of musical journey, I think, in a way, or, you know, being part of other people's musical journeys, really. Yes, and, uh, you, and you did a collaboration with a guy called Pete... Pete, Pete Fidge, Pete Fidge. Right. Yes, from, uh, from 2009, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, Pete Fidge and I have released two albums, uh, Broken Heart Surgery and We Are Millionaires. And uh, and that's been really good. Um, we went down the crowdfunding route, um, and um, you know we we've played sort of semi regularly over the last sort of like nine ten years. You know, well actually more than that now. Um, yeah. yeah, we've we've played for about a decade. And what's um, your still, it's still ongoing? Yeah. And what's your kind of musical? you know calendar looking like for the next year or two well at the moment it's looking like uh you know recording and um as i say still teaching uh pete and i have written a few more songs so that's um you know that's still on the horizon um and um yeah i'm just sort of experimenting really with uh, with writing again, and uh, you know, got a few songs recorded now. So. And have you still got the love of you know making music? You know, after all these decades and so many ups and downs. I have, yeah, yeah. It's um, you know, what I've realised now, and it's taken me a long time to get here, is that you just sort of like. You just have to kind of turn up and pick up the guitar and, and play. And 
even if you don't you don't feeling in the mood to do something that day usually and something will come out of just picking up an instrument you know i think before then i was uh it would be like yeah i'd have to feel inspired or i mean it, it's it's always been there it's always been a thing i've regularly gone to you know and heard tunes but now i'm i've realized you know you know I've, I've only in the past um i've needed to be in partnerships with other people in order to finish anything yes because of that having that kind of uh responsibility to somebody else or to a group whereas i am now i think i'm learning how to you know stick with something and uh until it's complete that's fantastic this is all yeah. good this is yeah this is it's only taken you know it's taken a number of years <laughs> decades really but it's all yeah it's, it's, it's a journey okay. it's okay it's what it's, it was yeah it's it, it yeah it's meant to be. Journey. It doesn't matter. Mm. I mean, when you yeah. when you look at your kind of amazing sort of discography, is there is there one particular album or song songs that you think, God, that was I'm so proud of that. Um, yeah, I'm I'm very proud of you know the Levitation albums. Um, when I listen to those. <clears throat> um, and yeah and house of loves you know the singles um and the you know the debut album i mean all of house of loves output really um yes. yeah but well, certainly the you know the early period and and um she paints words in red the album that album too that is fantastic I mean, if you could have said something to your, like a 16 or 18 year old self starting out, you know, with all the wisdom and the experiences and, and life lessons you've had, is there anything in particular you would, you would sort of recommend either something like, yes, I keep doing that or, oh, I would just think about this a little bit. I just wonder if it was anything that you'd have wanted to, could have said or wished you could have said to yourself back then when you were starting. It could be very, you know, it could be a, could be anything really the biggest yeah. cliche in the world probably will be <laughs> <laughs> well most um, people say things like yeah. oh just yeah. do it all just still just go for yeah. it oh okay mm. but some people say oh actually i'd practice more i'd try and enjoy it more i would drink less or something like that yeah yeah practice uh, yeah i think i would i would certainly try and really appreciate you know that you're in the moment you know and, and not always try to be some you know be either somewhere ahead or somewhere in the past you know yes yeah. being in that's, the that's the key that is the key you know i think that there is, is the key. there's no point worrying about the future because you just don't know what's going to happen it's it's a it's a you know it's a waste of valuable resource Yes, this is true, and you can't change the past either. So, <laughs> but look, well, look, Terry, yeah. thank you ever so much for um, You're welcome. Giving me the time for this has been amazing, and um, Good. yeah, Good. I really appreciate that. And I, yeah, it was fantastic. And I'm just, you know, pleased that you're still feeling so 
got so much to look forward to, which is always excellent. Yeah. So, because well, it's yeah. been one or two ups and downs, so that's life. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah. And that, dear listener, is the end of the interview. <laughs> you will get a brownie point if you manage to get that far in the interview. Anyway, I enjoyed it, and that's the main thing. And a massive thank you to Terry because for giving me the time for that. Um, interview. If you want to contact me, I know, for some reason, uh, you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. Also, um, all these have been archived. You can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. And um, Terry does have a, a, a website as well, which is terrybickers.com. And um, he's got lots of information there. So do check it out. Um, that's it. Anyway, have a great week and stay safe. Enjoy yourself. It's spring. <laughs>